professional storyteller but as we dug more and more and more into what she does what I discovered is that she's unearthed a niche for storytelling that I didn't even know existed. She specializes in storytelling for not-for-profits and uh, we didn't get much of a chance to discover the methodology but I want to unpack that for you my listeners today and see if there are some lessons in what Norma does for not-for-profits that you can use for your own business. Norma, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, first, uh, we have to get this out of the way, otherwise I'll be sitting on it for the whole conversation. Uh, you've got a great Scottish accent. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you've got a great Scottish accent. And, of course, um, when, you've, when you've got a Scottish accent, you're probably designated as one of the best storytellers in the world because of your birth. Well, um, I do come by my love of story, um, I guess, from my granny Jimison. I grew up in the lowlands of Scotland and was surrounded by story and nights were spent very often just swapping stories, singing songs. It's kind of like a Kaylee, but it was never called that. Mm -hmm. It was just naturally what families and friends did when they got together. So I grew up surrounded in stories. Um, so they're just kind of part of my DNA, I guess. Now you... Talk to me in our previous conversation about this older fellow that you met who was uh, designated one of um, Scotland's master storytellers. And you had some fascinating bits to talk about with him where he said, how many stories you have to have on tap and, and can you own a story? Do you want to dig into that? I thought it was a great story. Oh, yeah, that's... Um Duncan Williamson, and unfortunately, he's no longer with us, but in 2001, when I was, I decided I wanted to look at what it is to be a storyteller and how do you get better at being a storyteller without necessarily going to acting classes and so forth. So I went kind of back to the source. I went back and spent a few months living in Scotland and Ireland and Northern Wales, kind of hanging out with storytellers, especially the elders. So Duncan Williamson um, was a storyteller that was recognized by the University of Edinburgh, and they actually recorded a lot of the stories that he told. So I was fortunate enough to go and spend some time with Duncan, and he was just this fascinating individual that was what we would call illiterate. He couldn't read or write, um, so his stories were recorded and then transcribed. But he had so much storytelling wisdom, and he did say, you can't call yourself a storyteller unless you have at least 3,000 stories that you can tell at the drop of a hat. Um, and uh, for me, that was just incredible. He also said that I was asking him because a lot of his stories have been recorded, transcribed into books, and I wanted to tell a few of those because I love some of his stories. And so I was asking him, I said, Duncan, can I tell the story about Wee Huey and the Silver Angel? And he said, uh, sure, what are you asking me that for? And I said, 
because it's your story, so I need permission. And he couldn't comprehend the concept of copyright. Like he said, what do you mean my story? And I said, well, it's, it's in your book, so it's your story, so I have to ask permission before I can tell it. And he said to me in his lovely Scottish accent, he just said, I, I didn't understand you, Hen. He said, once the story's out, it's out. <laughs> I imagine I imagine uh, the copyright lawyers in Los Angeles are twisting. Yeah, but it's so true. He just said that stories were meant to be in the ether. It's um, they inform us, and he would. I would ask him, well, how do you choose a story? And he would say, oh, he said, yeah, you know, he said you don't choose stories. As a storyteller, you wait, you listen, you observe, you reflect. Stories find you. He said they're like little people that climb up on your shoulder and sit there. And once in a while, those stories will tug at your ear, and they want to be told. And he said that there are the reason why they're there is that there's a wisdom in that story that you need to learn. And you may never be conscious of what that wisdom is, but you can't just, you can't get the wisdom until you have kind of, he said, swallowed the story and told it over and over again until it climbs off your shoulder and, go, and goes away, which means that whatever the lesson the story had to tell you, um, it has landed and it's probably sitting on someone else's shoulder. So I thought it was a beautiful kind of way of, of um, then helping to filter out the many, many stories that I dug through before I choose the ones that I told. Storytelling must bump up against some opposition with companies. And I'm sure this is your experience because to me, uh, I'm a hard-nosed business person and it's all about the bottom line and storytelling comes across as, I don't know, maybe it's just my own personal bias, but it comes across as a bit flaky and a bit like grandpa sitting around the campfire, what possible good could storytelling give me? Um, as, as say, a not-for-profit that's looking to find uh, more money, more donors, more friends. What, what, what's, the, what's the deal? Well, I think, first of all, as a society, we're all hungry for stories. I, I find that over and over when you go to festivals or you tell stories to, whether it's adults or children, there's a real thirst for them. Um, so I think, why that is in, ma in many ways is that, um, and it doesn't really matter if it's a for-profit or not-for-profit organization, it's, it's a community, it's kind of a family. And I think we struggle with understanding what it all means. And leaders, I think, today are so often, the communications within organizations is so often managed and handled by public relations people or communication staff that we often don't, it's like you can't get that chance to understand what the true brand story is because it's like it's just layered upon layered of technical and um, org speak. And I think the higher people go within an organization, and you talked about CEOs, I think the the higher you climb in an organization's hierarchy, the less the technical skills are required. And I think it's more important that what we would call the soft skills are those developed through creative application. So things like critical thinking, problem solving, and communication and language. Those, those are the ones that CEOs um, and leaders need more than anything else. Why? I think because they should be the ones that carry the brand story intuitively. It should be inherent in everything they do. They should be able to explain 
uh, whether it's the product or it's the impact of the work, they should be able to explain to everyone what difference that's going to make in people's lives. I mean, and I think that it's kind of like Marty Neumeyer, I know in his book, The Brand Gap, talks about this shift. Um, mm -hmm. So that the value of a product has swung from kind of what it does, uh, so the features of it, what it does and what it's got, to how it makes you feel and also what it says about you as an individual, whether that's... So I think more and more brand stories are shifting to doing exactly what you said, and that is talking about the relationship you're going to have with this product. Um, and I, it, you see people like... Um, there's a, um, a researcher, uh, Chris Speed, at the University of Edinburgh has done an incredible... Uh, experiment with Oxfam, which is a, a charity based out of, uh, well, it's worldwide. Mm -hmm. But he um, he was looking at, he works in this weird area, it's called design informatics at the, the University of Edinburgh. And he was looking at what he called the data shadows of projects. And he was looking at, because we're selling on a digital platform, what are the stories that are attached to the products that we buy and would it make any difference if people had more meaning to a product and would it encourage them to buy? So he buddied up with a charity, Oxfam, and he decided that they were going to People, when people came in to their second-hand store, and it was one in Manchester that they did the pilot at, for every item in the second-hand store, if somebody was coming to do donate an item, they would give them a little QWERTY code, and they could um, scan it on their phone and then add a little story about the product. So if it was a teapot or an old wedding dress or something, and the little... So when consumers came in, they could also then scan this code attached to the product and read a little bit of a story behind the th this item. And within two weeks of doing it, they had sales spike by 50%. And so it kind of adds to that whole notion that, you know, people want to understand the relationship that the product can have in their life. What's the meaning? And it's... It's like Simon Sinek's, the, it's all about the why. And I think that bridges both for-profit and non-profit. That's, that's incredible, you know, it, and it is one of those soft things. Uh, as you know, I'm, I'm starting up this business which is all about um, uh, creating a service for uh, writing speeches for executives. It, it seems like everybody wants a TED Talk. And, yes. and I'm going, okay, fair enough, you want a TED Talk, but uh, you know, coming from the old school where you're going, you know, it has to add to the bottom line, it has to add to the bottom line, and how does it, you know, standing up and talking in front of a bunch of people add to the bottom line, but people want to believe, and, yes. and they're not going to believe product attributes, they believe other people, and that's very hard to, to mark down on the bottom line, which is why I think perhaps, you know, if you're in business, you're going, I don't get it, you know, it sounds, sounds flaky. Well, and I think um, storytelling, absolutely, the brand story, <laughs> or what, what immediately pops to mind when I introduce myself as a storyteller, they immediately think of me cross-legged on a floor in a library, surrounded by children, and probably wearing something uh, with batik on it, and reading, <laughs> and reading from a book. The, it's um, and I was involved in the Storytellers of Canada. I was the president of the national um, organization for a number of years, and the one thing that. Um, 
or the area of specialty that we focused on was oracy. So it was the oral culture of storytelling. And that used to be a skill set that was taught. It was taught to children. In Scotland, you had to have an oracy exam as part of your English um, exam. So it wasn't just writing and reading and writing, but it was speaking and listening. And I think that's coming back. As you said, are we returning? And I think we are. And I also think that as the internet progresses, I think we'll shift from, you know, if it's the way it's predicted, we're going to shift from email to voicemail. And so I think oracy and the ability to, um, in the corporate world, you could call it story selling, and the ability to tell stories about your products and the difference it's going to make in the lives of the consumers who purchase it um, is, is what it's going to be. I mean, look at Steve Jobs. You know, he was the guy that said, whenever you're going to do a sales pitch, there's only three things you have to do. Number one, tell a story. Number two, paint a picture when you tell that story. And number three, create a vision. And the vision speaks to how your life or the life of the consumer is going to be changed fundamentally if they purchase this product or um, have access to the service. And it's no different in the not-for-profit how will you feel different if you are able to help um, eradicate something in your society or maintain it or initiate it? Maybe what we need is in order to internalize a product and say it's okay for me to carry this, uh, you know, this bag or, or wear this suit, um, I have to know that it fits with my ethos, who I am. Yes. And, I, I, you know, I think people have a really hard time expressing that. They said, I just bought the suit. You know, I, I liked it. Yeah, I, it has nothing to do with the brand. But, you know, the brand is all about this ethos of, of, of here's who we are, here's who you are, I think we'd get along. And, you know, that actually, um, when I teach storytelling, there's, there's um, especially in the not-for-profit world, I always talk about the two most important story categories that you have to develop and you have to have in your toolbox. Uh, one is definitely the collection of stories about the beneficiaries of your mission. So those who are going to benefit from what it is that your charity is doing or your nonprofit is doing. Um, the other ones are what I call maps and model stories. And those are the stories about the people who help and contribute to that nonprofit to help them fulfill their mission. So maps and model stories are usually about donors or volunteers because that's the two ways in which charities get their work done. And it's interesting because it's based on, and the, the reason I chose the, the title Maps and Models, it's based on the fact that when people read a story that most closely reflects their own reality, um, so if, if it's just the, it's the same way as when you read a book or you're watching a movie and the protagonist is very close to who you think you are, you're completely engaged in the story. It's like you're, you have been invited into that story and you're walking, talking, and living that character, um, that character's life. And so when you're choosing a story strategically for a particular audience. You want to have enough stories in your inventory that you can literally choose the story that best reflects the reality of the audience. So once you've done your kind of research on who you're going to be pitching to, then you need to choose a story that is more closely aligned with one you've gathered from a volunteer or a donor in a not-for-profit organization that is as close as possible 
to that audience. Because it's kind of like you're allowing them, by engaging them and inviting them into the story, you're allowing them to take your product or that great feeling of helping other people for a test drive. And it's like a flight simulator or something like that. You know, it's funny because um, one of the big things that I always tell my clients is that you know what, um, advertising doesn't sell, PR doesn't sell, but get somebody to endorse your product. Somebody, yeah. and not not uh, Steve Jobs, not Richard Branson, uh, mm-hmm. not you know Kim Kardashian, but get somebody normal to, oh, say, yes. to write a great review or to, to go on the air and say, you know, I use this stuff and it really works for me. And it, it, it's unbelievable the impact that has. And that is, I guess, somebody sharing a story with somebody else and saying, I'm just like you. Yes, I'm not fancy pants. I'm not being paid to do this. Uh, And I believe in it. And that just brings the barrier to buying way down. And I think charities, unfortunately, do themselves a huge disservice. If you look a lot at the um, kind of the nonprofit communication newsletters and website pages where they do talk about those individuals, the donors and the volunteers, they always focus on the big gifts. They always focus on the volunteers that have served for 50 years. And I'm not saying that those stories aren't worth telling. They absolutely are. But when someone at home opens their newspaper or gets their newsletter in the mail from that particular not-for-profit, and they're reading that story, they're immediately excluding themselves from belonging to the club that you want memberships for. You know, they're reading that story saying, oh, you know, at a subconscious level, well, that's okay for you know, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or another large philanthropist that just, you know, donated a few million dollars. But they don't associate that with themselves. Whereas if you, I often work with charges and say, look at your bell curve of donors. Like, where are the donors that are most attracted to your organization and giving you the bulk of your gifts? Not necessarily the highest a donation level, but the majority, and then tell those stories. Because when people open their newspapers and read that story or click on the website and read that story, they're going to say, and the whole point of choosing those stories is that after the audience reads them or hears them, they should say, boy, I could do something like that. Because they've completely um, related to that individual in their life. Now you think about it. the, the monumental election of Barack Obama the first time was, everybody said it, it was a victory for social media and grassroots approach. And the whole thing was that he won with a campaign that was funded by nickel and dime contributions. And that said so much about him, not, not necessarily uh, social media, but about him that he would reach out to people who would say, I've got 10 cents, 20 cents, a dollar to give. And, and it became this people's movement. And we all felt... You know, even as outsiders and Canadians, you go, this guy really represents the people. And then you look at the Republicans who are going, you know, to the Koch brothers and getting $800 million for their new mm-hmm. campaign. You're going, this isn't a campaign of the people. This is a campaign of two guys who've got a very strong agenda. And you feel completely uh, abhorrent about that, you know? Yeah. I, I think um, another thing that does drive people, whether it's to purchase a product or to support a nonprofit, is a sense, a, a deep sense of belonging 
uh, wanting to belong to a community of like-minded individuals. And I think over the last 50 or 60 years, one of the things we've lost in society is a sense of belonging and a sense of community. That's why we've seen a huge revival in storytelling. Uh, because storytelling, when you pull people together and share stories, stories of the land, stories of the people, the history, or you know, current um, contemporary stories, you are creating sort of a family or a community and people are starved for that. So I think that's also why if you can encourage people to feel as if you support our organization or you buy this product or something, you or supports a politician, it's because you are the, the overarching narrative is painting a picture of a society you want to belong to. And I think there's a huge magnetism. I mean, you look at, you know, what we now call radicalization. And this is not unusual that young people have left homes and left countries to belong to a story that speaks to them in a stronger way of a community they want to be part of than the community they're already living in. So the whole concept of gangs and growing up in Glasgow, outside Glasgow when I did in the Lowlands, gang warfare was huge. It's, it's, it still is to a, a great extent. But it was this sense of belonging. There was kind of the, the lost boys mm -hmm. that were attracted because it was a sense of community. That, that makes so much sense. And, you know, I had a previous conversation uh, with a gentleman and he said, you know, the, in the era of social media, um, what that does, it, it creates a cocoon around us and it envelops us in this isolation from other people. And we, we've traded in our strong bonds with real people for weak bonds with a huge number of people that we don't even really know about. And we certainly wouldn't, you know, help them on moving day or push them out of a snowdrift. Uh, but that's, that's why storytelling has come on so strong because we've created this isolation around ourselves. Um, with tools like social media and also, I mean, to a, le to a greater degree, you know, moving from small communities into these huge communities where we're all together, we're all really close, but we're isolated from one another. Well, it, that's absolutely true. I mean, you just have to look at a lot of studies that speak to the fact that mental health issues are on the increase for a number of people. And one of um, the greatest concerns in a lot of cities is isolation a sense of not belonging. And despite social media being the greatest communication platform that's available to us, what we're failing to do is interact socially with one another. And um, Susan Pinker's book, The Village Effect, speaks to that. And it's just amazing research. I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a compilation of her work in it, there's like over 150 research reports that she delved into to be able to come up with the fact that really, social interaction and the ability to just have face-to-face -face communication on a regular basis is a greater health determinant than stopping smoking or losing weight or all of those. I mean, I have to break in. I have this terrific story I heard a while back and it was a sociological study that was done at the turn of the last century in the early 1900s and it was they, they, uh, doctors were studying this immigrant community that was working in, in heavy industry in the United States on the East Coast somewhere. And uh, what they discovered was this one immigrant community uh, was outliving all the communities around it by years and the residents were much healthier. So they started to study stuff. They said, what are they eating? Well, you know, they're, they're Mediterranean. I think they were Italian or Spanish. Yep. 
and uh, they 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 were eating the same stuff. They were eating olive oil. They were eating you know a lot of fish and, and vegetables. Well, the other guys were too. Uh, well, were they smoking? Did they stop smoking? Was there something about smoking? No, they smoked just as much. Were they not drinking? No, they were drinking just as much. And then they finally, by process of elimination, they tried to figure out what these folks were doing different. And I believe what they found was that at night they had a much stronger sense of pulling out the chair on the front patio and talking to the neighbors. And yep. the other guys were already much more uh, in sort of like a big city industrial mode where they lived in their little tenement and they didn't talk to everybody. And that was what they came up with. These folks pulled the chairs out into the street and, and, uh, and started to talk to each other at night and created this amazing community. And they were living longer. Well, and that's that's exactly Susan Pinker talks about. I think it's Sardinia, uh, where she went and did her research. And there's there's another island, one of the Greek islands, where they have the greatest longevity factor of of you know anyone. And people are now moving to the um, the locations that she's actually cited in her book, thinking that they will, you know, just by being there, um, just sort of live longer. And I, and I do think that if you look at um, studies of empathy among undergraduate students in the States, unfortunately, they they have been sort of taking a bit of a nosedive, almost as a direct correlation to the use of social media. Um, so, you know, we have this brilliant technology that allows us to communicate, like at lighting speed, uh, across the world, and yet what we seem to want to do less and less is actually engage with people. Even people don't phone each other anymore. They email. Um, so, and if anyone that understands a basic sort of communication um, matrix, you know, just relying on text alone uh, can open up huge areas of miscommunication. It so, is, you yeah. know, it is, but just, I mean, from personal life, uh, everybody's texting now. And, oh, I and, and I, I say to, to uh, my wife and my friends, pick up the phone. I mean, <laughs> what is this? It's this series of monologues back and forth. And, and uh, I'm going, pick up the phone and solve the problem in five seconds. But somehow people don't. Why? Well, I, I'm not sure because I, I, I saw it happen in the workplace um, before I sort of entered the world of self-employment. I did notice more and more that I would be in an office. I was working at uh, a university. And I would, you know, people would be emailing me and they were next door. And so I would go next door and have the conversation with them. And before I left, you know, I would say, okay, here's the issue. Here's what we can do. Are we in agreement? Yes, fantastic. Let's just move on this. And then as I would leave their office, they would say, well, are you going to, are you going to email that to me? I said, why? We just discussed it and agreed. But could you just send me a quick email? And I'm thinking, what happened that we don't just trust one another when we have conversations? Why, why do, does everything have to be written down, you know? It, it's a funny thing. I, you know what, we've, we've, gone, we've gone for a half an hour here, and I have not touched on the one thing that I want to touch on. So I want to spend uh, the last little bit of time talking about the not-for-profit sector because I think it's fascinating. I see a sector that is full of amazing stories. You know, you've got yep. you've got the folks in hardship, you've got uh, the folks who are helping, you've got amazingly stirring stories. But you say they're not doing a good job of it. Why? This this seems to be the easiest assignment of all. Why are they not doing a good job of it? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I do think, and I've, I've worked with lots of non-profits, um, and I do think they can tell good stories. I think where they fall down is that um, they struggle knowing which stories they should be telling. And so um, the other thing is they actually, they don't invest time or resources into what maybe other uh, for-profit organizations understand is vital, and that is communications. A little bit of research and a little bit of communication strategizing is going to help them choose the right stories. Because if they don't, uh, if they fail to be able to tell the story of the difference they make in the society, they'll never convince people to come on board with them. I think also there's a few things happening within the charitable sector that is against them in being able to cut through the clutter. There's hundred over 160,000 nonprofits in Canada. I mean, they employ 2 million people. They're 8% 8 of the GDP output in Canada. So it is actually a huge sector. And there's more and more donors that are you know, becoming more savvy about finding out. So they're going to the CRA website or other websites, and they're getting all the statistics and the, the finances, but there's a lack of stories, strategic stories. So I think that while not-for-profits will go out and hire fundraisers to come in, they sometimes don't equip them with the toolbox because they haven't taken the time to, uh, what I would um, call, create an inventory of clear and Compelling and convincing, and what I mean by that is compelling from an emotional perspective, but convincing from the fact that why would anyone give them money? I mean, it's kind of their, <clears throat> what I would call the fiscal story, like why would I trust you with money? And so it's being able to choose the right stories um, and being able to craft those and spend time crafting them so they are available. And unfortunately, what happens is there is a difference between the kind of communications um, marketing elements that are required in the for-profit, there is a shift and a difference in what's required for the not-for-profit. And unfortunately, there isn't an area that's training communications people specifically on how to write motivational um, communications materials for the non-profit world. Because it's another layer of donor motivation. You're not just buying a product. You're sort of having to convince other people to invest in what you're already doing to help others in community. So it's, a, it's understanding how to motivate um, individuals to care about another individual, not just to care about themselves. Now, hold on, you hit on a, a, something that, that caught me by surprise. You said that um, uh, not-for-profits need to have an inventory of good stories. You know, as, as yes. a brand guy, um, I'm used to crafting a story for a brand, you know, this is yeah. the brand story and this is what you stick with and you put it out there and put it out there. But you're talking about a much richer, more complex thing that perhaps goes back to um, the fellow that you interviewed who says you have to have an inventory of 3000 stories to be called a storyteller yeah. because it just makes you more real and more interesting. Um, the same thing goes for businesses and not for profits, I would assume. Well, you need your overarching narrative. You need to have that fundamental, and I, what I do when I work with organizations, I say, just fill in the blanks. We are the only nonprofit in our community that 
like fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. What real estate do you own that no one else can lay claim to? So it's peeling the onion and getting to that point of differentiation or we call it USP in the marketing world. Yeah, the unique selling proposition, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so it's like, what is the overarching story that only you can tell as an organization? But then there's the drop down from that. That's often not enough because what you need to then is to understand all of the potential answers to the questions that donors, especially the savvy ones today, are going to ask before they invest in your organization. And so the inventory then speaks to all those strategically chosen and developed and crafted stories that you can have in your toolbox when you are either going out to talk to someone or writing speeches or putting ads in the local newspaper um, or updating your website. And those, I think, have to be carefully crafted because so many charities are in similar fields dealing with similar issues that is very difficult for the general public to be able to understand why you would be any different than another charity that's helping, you know, whether it's eradicating poverty or supporting kids or um, helping with abused animals or individuals and so on and so forth. And now there's a complicating factor. It's not just 160,000 charities and uh, nonprofits in Canada. It's also, you know, there's at least another almost million in the USA. And then we're now on a global marketplace. People are giving overseas. Uh, so the competition is highly competitive market with very little investment in communication expertise. Um, so for a, a not-for-profit, it seems engaging you would be a terrific thing. How do I, how do I get a hold of you? Well, you can email me um, at the narrative company at talus.net. Mm -hmm. That's probably the best way. Right. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so um, you're working right now with, you've got, I know you've got a full roster right now. If you, who, 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 give me some, uh, give me a good story of one of the, one of the not-for-profits that you helped out. There's a very simple story that's probably, for me, um, one of my favorites. And when I worked with the Rick Hansen uh, Foundation, we obviously, because the Rick, uh, Rick and the Rick Hansen Foundation, they've been around for uh, over 25 years now. So they have a gazillion stories in their inventory. And it's funny how once in a while a little story just pops up. And it was about an individual whom we helped through one of the programs that we funded through the Rick Hansen Foundation. Just a little bit of money. And it was a guy who lived in northern uh, BC. And he came home after a spinal cord injury to a home that was not accessible. And it was an old home. He was, I think, in his late 70s at the time. And he applied for some money to enlarge in the doorway into the kind of the dining room area of um, his house. And he wrote this little letter to us to thank us. And he said, thank you very much for, um, you know, helping me. I renovated the house and because his wheelchair, he couldn't fit through this doorway. And he said in this note, for the first time ever, I can now have dinner with my family. And we gathered around the table and Christmas dinner together. And I just... Oh, you know, stuff like that, you read that and, and you just puddle up, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a game changer. 
Well, it's so small, but it just shows you um, this man did not have much money at all and just couldn't afford to do this. And it's not, it wasn't the money to fix the door, but again, it was what it meant in his life. Yeah. And oh. the difference it made. But you know, you just told me that story, and I just, I just, I just choked up. You know, and you're going, when was the last time a beer brand was able to do something like that? <laughs> <laughs> you're just like these, you know, stories like this, human stories that that are authentic and real. That they have so much power. I think they're the social glue of community. And that's the thought I'm going to finish on. Norma, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. You've been listening to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, look to the future, and succeed because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoyer.